you have your New Testament, the, uh, the text of this sermon is from the book of James. I hope that you have a uh, worksheet because if you're, this is the first time you've come on Sunday night, then uh, let me explain to you that we, we, we use a worksheet and we, uh, that's all right, Jim. Uh, we use a worksheet to kind of work with and it helps us in our Bible study. We've been preaching and teaching through the book of James and um, so we want you to have one of these. If you don't uh, and you'd like to get one to, to use in the sermon, in the study, then you lift your hand if you will. I think we might have some toward the back. Um, Dale, can you get us some of these please sir? Ed? Okay. Just lift your hand and we'll get to you in just a second. The book of James is a very practical book. The Bible is divided into two emphases. One is on how a person becomes a Christian, how a person is saved. The other emphasis is on how he's to live after he has been saved. And the book of James deals with the latter how a person is to live once he has made his allegiance to Christ. And so it's a very um, practical, everyday, down-to-earth book. In fact, it gets right down where we live. And to have a worksheet is to kind of help us as we study the book of James. I'll begin reading at chapter 4, and I'll read through verse 10. Chapter 4, 1 through 10. I believe that's all we have, and so you might want to look on with your neighbor. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source, of, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Remember that we're preaching through the book of James, and this is where we are tonight, chapter 4. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's his choice. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us, but He gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says... God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, your, submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and He will exalt you. This message tonight is dedicated to those of you who would rather fight than surrender. I surprised you, didn't I? To those of you who find it difficult to say, I give in, I surrender. I came from a farm as a young boy to school. The first few months of school for me were horrendous. They were terrible. I was scared to death. I'd never been away from my mother any length of time, and I was a shy, sheltered boy, and I was terrified at school. I remember the first fight I ever saw. It was on the playground. The guys fighting looked like giants. I know that they were just junior high now, but they were fighting it out on the playground during, during uh, recess, and I saw that. I was already terrified. I just knew that the whole thing was going to turn into a riot. I watched them fight for a long time, as did everybody else. No teachers were around for some reason. And they just kind of fought until they were exhausted. I, I can see it in my mind right now as though it were yesterday. And one had the other down on the ground, and he had him in a grip around the neck, you know. He was just kind of choking him, his tongue sticking out and kind of turning blue. And he, and he just kind of held him there. And, and everybody else, the bell rang, and everybody just kind of left. And he was just kind of laying on top of this guy, choking him around the neck. And I can remember somebody saying, come on guys, get up from there and stop. And, the one, and, and one said, the one on top said, I'm not going to get up until he says, I give. And the guy on the bottom, I don't know whether he could say that or not, or he could say anything or not, but he wasn't about to say, I give up. I don't, they still may be on the playground fighting, I don't know, but they were when I left them. Man by nature is a fighter. He'd rather fight than give in. It takes place on the freeway. I'd rather fight for my position than let somebody else have it. It takes place in the business world, and it takes place in the church. Franklin Roosevelt said, I can't think of anything I love better than a good fight. The text deals with the problems that arise when people fight when they shouldn't. Now that assumes that there are some times when it's right to fight. I think that's true. Perhaps the reason why we've allowed the encroachment of evil to be so devastating is because we've given up too quick. There are some times when we need to fight, when we, do, when we should not surrender, we need to keep on fighting. But the problem of this text deals with the times when persons fight and they shouldn't. Did you know, it just kind of dawned on me recently, that you can trace a man's history by his wars better than by his achievements. And so when you look in the history books of mankind, it'll usually trace man's history by his wars, by his fights. And I've noticed that when people talk about the history of a church, they often talk about the times of her fighting. Isn't that tragic? Isn't that a paradox? So the problems that arise when we fight when we shouldn't, how fighting starts is the title of this text and how they are stopped. And I want you to notice, I want you to recognize that when I talk about the warring and the fighting and the quarreling and the conflicts, I'm talking not only about those conflicts that take place within relationships, 
but I'm also talking about the wars and the conflicts and the inner turmoil that goes on in the heart and life of just about everybody in I, that I know. If you're following the outline and the worksheet, we're going to notice who is fighting as the first object. Who is fighting? Now, you might think that, that he's going to be talking about somebody outside the Christian faith, but now remember that the epistle of James is written to Christians. It's written to the people who are of the fellowship of the believers. It's written to people who, are, who have claimed themselves as a part of the family of God. And he says, did you notice? He said, I see that there are quarrels and conflicts among you so that the quarreling and the fighting and the struggles that are going on that he's going to deal with here are taking place within the fellowship of God's people. It's tragic but true that so often the church is characterized by caustic criticism, by harsh words, by jealousy, by bitterness and strife. Some of the bitterest battles I've ever witnessed have taken place in the church. Now, who is, what are these wars that he's talking about that are taking place within the fellowship, within the church group? Amazing enough, what are the battles? He says, he, he calls them, in, chap, in verse 1, he calls them quarrels and conflicts, and he moves from the broad to the narrow. He moves from the general to the, to the specific. Now, the, now, quarrels in the Greek text means the general warfare that goes on. The, the conflict that exists in a generalized sense. But when he talks about conflicts and uses that word, the second word, he's talking about those intimate struggles that take place one-on-one. -on -one. And the tragedy of warring and conflict is not that it's an impersonal thing that takes place in a generalized sense. It often is one person warring against another, one person bitter against another, one person fighting someone else. Now, the analysis of the problem. I want you to stay right here and follow in this text. There, the analysis of the problem is found in verse 1b and verse 4. And the analysis is divided into the cause and the effect. Now, watch this. There are two causes for the conflict. One is in 1b, and it says like this. Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members. The cause of the conflict he calls pleasures. Now, what that word means, what that word is, literal, is your inner desires, your desires. Now, desire can be, is neutral. Desire can be good. There can be desire for God. There can be desire for Christian growth. There can be desire for success. But he says that the cause of warring and conflict and engagement within the fellowship is caused by one's inner desire. Now, what causes that? When the inner desire, even if that desire is good, is frustrated, that's when conflict begins to emerge. For example, this kind of thing can take place in, in prison. Somebody frustrated in his desires. It can take place in the ghetto. Here's a family, a young man, who wants out of the ghetto, but he's bound in that bondage, and he's frustrated in his desire for freedom. 
it take, can take place in a nursing home. Frustrated desire, and it often takes place within the church. Desire frustrated. The psychologists refer to this as the frustration-aggression hypothesis. It's when a person has some desire that's frustrated. Now, I've noticed this time and time again that usually the source of conflict is a person who wants something desperately for himself, but he finds that desire frustrated. And so there's anger, and there's resentment, and there's hostility, frustration, aggression. The second source of the, of the conflict is found in, in verse 4, and I refer to it as a cosmos motivation. That is, one adopts the motivation of the world system. Now, when he talks about love of the world, he's talking about love of that system that is not of God. The acceptance of that worldview and that philosophy that disregards him. Selfishness. He's talking about a person who lives on the basis of his natural inclination. So, that the source of conflict, both inner and outer conflict, is this to have a desire that's frustrated and to live on the basis of the natural inclination and selfishness. Now, what are its effects? Verses 2 and 3. There are several of them, and I want you to just hang, stay right with me and watch the progression of this thing. It's amazing. When there is the frustration of desire and that aggression that results of it, and where there is the adoption of a world system that's not of God and, the, and living on the basis of the natural inclination. Now notice, oftentimes, let me just digress to say that sometimes when we live on the basis of the natural inclination, we're going to, it's going to develop conflicts with people around us because they're not living on the basis of the natural inclination. For example, here's a person, a teenager in his home, who lives on, in a Christian home, who lives on the basis of natural inclination. What he desires, he does. What he feels, he wants. What feels good, that's what he does. But his Christian parents won't adopt to that. They won't accept that. And so there's conflict because one is living on the basis of a world system. The other's living on the basis of God's system. You see how the conflict emerges. Now, what are the effects of this thing? It's amazing to watch it. Look at number one. He says that because of this, the, re the effect of it, the result of it is murderous envy. Murderous envy. You murder, he says, and you envy. Now, I don't suppose any of you are ready to confess tonight that you're murderous. We've got some policemen here. We've put you in the hooskow. None of you are willing to do that. But is there anybody here, is there anybody here who has not had that kind of thought? Is there anybody here who has not murdered another with his tongue? Is there anybody here who has not cut another down with his tongue because he envied that other person? That's the way we feel good. We cut another down. Is there anybody here who has not committed murder with his mind? The result of the inner frustration and the, and the motivation that's of the world system is murderous envy and the progression. Look at it. The second step is 
that we stop praying. He says, you have not because you ask not. The second step is that our prayer life ceases. Now that makes sense. If I'm living on the basis of the natural inclination and I'm living on the basis of my philosophy that fits and patterns the world system, why should I ask God for anything? Now sometime I think perhaps that we assume that the conflicts that emerge in one's life might be the result of his prayerlessness. I'm submitting to you that his prayerlessness is the result of his inner conflict. There's the, sec the third progression, and it seems to be, it seems to be a, a, a digression, but it's not. It's the next step up. There begins to be self-centered praying. He says, you ask so that you might consume it on your own desires. Let me tell you something. There is one thing worse than not praying, and that is to pray a corrupted prayer to consume it on your own lust. Folks, it is better not to ask God for it at all than to ask for that which you want to consume on your own pleasure. That's the progress in the step. The fourth is that that man becomes a friend of the world. I got to thinking about this and I thought about my friend. The best friend I ever had was named J.D. Allred. Old J.D. J.D. was... Um, uh, came from a home. His father was, um, his father, the nicest thing I can say about his father was that he was mentally ill. And he'd get up at night and he'd shine, you know, J.D. come in a little later than the, than the normal, uh, than, than his, than his, than his uh, curfew, and J.D.'s father would punish him all night, and this way he'd punish him. He'd get up periodically. He'd set an alarm. He'd get up periodically, he'd go in there and shine the flashlight in J.D.'s eyes, wake him up, just keep him up all night. He was a, it was a weird thing. I don't, li I don't know why I like J.D. so well, except it was during a time of my rebellious, the, uh, a rebellious period in my life, and I've tried to think about it for a while, and I thought that the reason why I liked J.D. was that we were so compatible, and we had the same mutual life goals. We were friends. As a matter of fact, one night we decided that we were going to make a pact. We were both going to college in the same college, and all we were going to do in college was party. And so while we were partying, we made the pledge that we were just going to be together in the, in the dorms, roommates to the end, and all we were going to do was party. We were compatible, and we had the same mutual life goals. Now, folks, the truth of the matter is to be a friend of the world is to be an enemy of God. Because the world system and the natural inclination is not compatible, is, does not have the same mutual life goal as God has. And so a man, when he chooses friendship with the world, he chooses at the same time to align himself as God's enemy. I mean, he draws up the lines and he arms himself against God. And that's the next step. There begins to be hostility toward God, a striving against God, and an enemy. He becomes an enemy of God. That's the effect of the wars that exist in a man's life. Now, a synopsis of the solution. Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. First, the power. 
of the solution. Verse 5. Now when you read that, it makes absolutely as much sense, you know, probably as this sermon. <laughs> or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. What does that mean? I, I'm sure that most of you, most of us say, I don't have the slightest idea what that says. And the margin, if you have a New American Standard, probably is the best translation. In fact, Weymouth translation is the best, I think. And this is the Weymouth translation of verse 5. The Spirit which He has caused to dwell in us yearns jealously over us. Can I say that again? The Spirit which He has caused to dwell in us yearns jealously over us, cares for us, broods over us, desires us, wants us so that the synopsis of the solution to the conflict that's going on inside of you is the Holy Spirit who yearns over you. And the solution to the conflicts that emerge in relationships, if they're at home or in your parents, is the Spirit who yearns over you and is jealous for you, does not want to lose you. And the solution to the problem that exists in conflicts that emerge within the church is the Spirit of God that yearns and broods over that church. Ephesians 4, 3 says that we might have the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And the unity of the Spirit means the unity that the Spirit produces. Now watch this. If Jesus Christ, the Spirit of the living God, indwells us, and He indwells us all. He yearns for us that we be one. He broods over us. He's jealous when we're not one. And He has set Himself for the purpose of bringing unity, producing it within the fellowship, in the bond of peace. So the solution to the conflicts that war and rage is, let the Spirit take control. Wherever there is a spirit-led believer. Wherever there is a spirit-filled church, there will be unity in the fellowship. Secondly, the principle. The principle is found in verse 6. This is the synopsis of the solution. The power of the Holy Spirit, the principle is this. He giveth more grace to the humble. And the word means he gives grace on top of grace. He gives grace and more grace. Now watch. You know what it would take for you to love some people? It would take grace to do it. And she's not a blue-eyed blonde. I'm talking about the, the, the power and the unmerited favor of God, the goodness of God. You know what it would take to love someone? Grace on top of grace, right? You know what it takes to be humble? It takes grace on top of grace. Now, you and I may accomplish what we want to accomplish by our own assertion and our own hostilities we may fight our way to the top but in doing it we miss grace on top of grace for God gives grace to the humble grace to love grace to yield grace to surrender our rights grace to say I'm sorry grace to say I'm so I surrender he gives grace on top of grace now what are some practical what is some practical advice right quick and then I'm through did you notice that the last word of verse 6 and the first word of verse, seven, of verse 10 are the same? 
the last words of verse 6 is he gives grace to the humble the first words of verse 10 are humble yourselves therefore so that what he has in verses 7, 8, and 9 are bracketed now watch this bracketed what it means to humble yourself before God what it means to humble yourself before God now listen that I'm through it means several things one he describes it he says first submit yourself to God it means subjection it means to decide to let God rule your life in my discipleship class we've come in in the second group that I'm working with to that little uh, uh, room illustration that some of you've already had that discipleship course know about and in this little illustration um, it talks about this that there has to come a time like the Lord in living in our life and this life of ours is a house there has to come a time in every person with every person where he turns over, where he submits the title deed to his, of his life to God. Now, Terry uh, Holmes gave her testimony in my class this morning. She'll be giving here. I asked her for this permission. About two weeks ago, she said, for the first time in my life, I knelt down beside my chair and I gave God every part of my life. Have you ever really submitted the title deed of your life to God? I mean, have you ever really sold out to Him? This is what it means to humble yourself to God. And this is the practical advice concerning the war that exists, both internally and externally. You need to come to the time of life where you can turn over the title deed of that life to Him. Second, resist the devil. We've talked about that a little bit this morning. For you see, there are two spirits in the world. There is the Holy Spirit and there is the unholy spirit. And both have the same desire and the same purpose in life. They both want to control us. You submit, you resist the devil. You stand against him. There has to be in the at some point in life where you stand against him. You make up your, your mind, you decide, I'm going to resist him. Third, you draw near to God. Did you know that you can be as close to God as you want to be? And if you'll notice that, it, it suggests to me that God has never moved He's always in, been where he is now. It's you and I that have been separated, that have moved. Draw near to God. I like the progression. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. Notice. He says, clean your hands. Now, now this is the way it works. Most of the time, we tell people, now you get your life straightened out, and then you, then you, then you come to the Lord. You clean your hands, purify your hearts, then you come to God. That's the wrong progression. It's you come to God. 
and as the result of your coming to him, you clean your hands, you purify your heart. I knew a man whose daughter was in love with a bum. I mean, he was a scallywag. He wasn't worth a shooting. And she loved him. She's going to marry him. And they didn't want her to marry him. And they talked against him. The more they talked against him, the more she went to him. And the more she defended him. About a year later, someone saw this family. This girl was not going to marry this fellow. She was in love going to marry another guy. He was just, he was just the greatest. He was a strong, dynamic young man, strong, dynamic Christian. And they asked the father, how did it happen? What happened along the way? And he said, you know what? He, decided, he said, we decided we were going to quit talking, saying negative things about the guy she was in love with. And we just decided to introduce her to somebody better. And when she found somebody better, when she was introduced to somebody better, this other guy just faded into the woodwork. Now watch this. You come to God tonight, and I promise you the things that are in your hands that you want to hold on to won't seem near as important any longer. You come to God tonight and the unclean things in your hands that are so important to your life, the natural inclination of the world system, and I promise you, you'll want to throw it away. It'll seem so ugly. The word purify your heart, you double-minded, means to begin to understand that you cannot serve God in mammon. You have to place your affection on one. You've seen the compass, haven't you? The compass is designed in that magnetic north. Never have been able to understand that. But you take that compass, you watch that needle. It'll bounce around, and after a while, it'll focus on magnetic north. You can, you can take the dial and take the N off the dial and put an S there for south. You can you know, try to fool the needle, turn around three times, put the needle there, it'll bounce around a little while, and it'll point to magnetic north. And when it finds magnetic north, it just settles down upon it. That's what Paul means in Colossians when he says, set your affection on things above. It means let the compass of your life seek out magnetic north. Let the compass of your life find God and just settle down on him. One thing. Then he says, you know what will happen? He will exalt you. And I want you to underscore the word. He, he will exalt you. I was walking by that two guys fighting on the playground that day kind of easing around beside him, wondering what in the world's going to happen in that strange place called Monday School Playground, so unlike the little farm out in 10 miles out in the country where, I, where my turf was. And as I went past those two guys fighting there on the ground, the one on top 
saying to me and to everybody who went by, I'm so tough. I've won this battle. I'm on top. Because in every conflict, the ultimate purpose of that conflict is that we might come out on top. You humble yourself before God, and He will exalt you. You know what that word exalt means? It means that He will lift you to the highest level that there is to live. You humble yourself before God and He will give you the highest kind of life possible to live. Would you bow your heads with me? Now God doesn't want us to have internal conflict and He doesn't want us to strive with one another. He wants us to live in the spirit, in the unity of the spirit, in the bond of peace. I wonder if there's anyone here tonight who would just like to say, Lord, I surrender. I want to stop the struggle and the war and the conflict. I want to stop the rebellion. I just want to give in and give up. there might be a need for you to come forward publicly make that statement after we prayed we'll sing we'll Jim will lead us and we'll invite you to come Father Jesus said my peace I give unto you not as the world giveth give I unto the, to you so let not your heart be troubled neither let it be afraid. And there is such evidence everywhere of internal war and conflict that manifests itself in broken relationships, disunity, fighting, quarreling, conflict. In the home, in the world, in the church. Help us, Father, to surrender you and to get the power of the Spirit and the grace on top of grace. And I pray that you'll call us now to these moments of decision to do what you want us to do. Because I ask for Jesus' sake and in his name I pray. Now in a spirit of prayer we'll sing, I've decided to follow Jesus. We'll invite your response if you feel led as we stand, as we sing.
we're going to be dismissed and in the gratitude of this great day where we've been together and in worship and in concern for our brother, Mr. Dane Polk, who was injured, severely injured in an accident last night and maybe now in surgery and in and, Denison, and we'll lift him up in prayer. We'll go in the spirit of that concern and in the light and goodness of God's grace to us as we pray together. Charlie, voice our prayer, would you please? Father God, we praise you today and we thank you for the fellowship that we've had and the word that you've given us today. Father, we thank you for the witness of these three in baptism tonight. And Father God, we just lift up our brother Dane Pope. God, we ask that you guide the surgeon's hand, that you be with him while he's in surgery. And Father, we lift up his family and give them strength to minister, to nurture him. Father, let him know your presence with him. And let this be a time that will draw him closer to you. We claim this in Jesus' precious name and for his glory. Amen.